0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Rebecca Boggs-Roberts to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Rebecca is a journalist and author, having been a correspondent for NPR, PRI, and the BBC, including the programs Morning Edition, The World, and Talk of the Nation. She is currently the Deputy Director of Events for the Library of Congress. Her first book in 2012, co-authored with Sandra Schmidt, was Historic Congressional Cemetery. Her second was 2017's Suffragist in Washington, D.C., The 1913 Parade, and The Fight for the Vote. 2020 brought The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, co-authored by Lucinda Robb. Today, we'll begin our discussion of her newest work, Untold Power, the fascinating rise and complex legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson, which is published by Viking. Rebecca, after an introduction that provides some broad strokes of Edith Wilson's life, the prologue that follows is an... In Media Ray flash forward to a pivotal moment in late 1919 after Woodrow Wilson's debilitating stroke. What is the scene and what are the stakes?
1: It's kind of a bonkers scene. I wanted to grab readers' attention to just sort of lay out the absurdity of the situation. But also I knew that to the degree that anybody knew anything about Edith Wilson, they knew this moment in 1919 when she seized control of the executive branch after Woodrow Wilson had a stroke. So the stroke happened in October of 1919. A few months passed, and he really wasn't seen by anyone anywhere. Edith conspired with his doctor, Kerry Grayson, and his chief of staff, Joe Tumulty, to keep the extent of his illness from everybody. I mean, from the public, from the press, from the cabinet, from the Congress, from the president himself. They didn't even really let him know how sick he was. And that lockdown worked. Fairly well for a couple of months. People got used to just corresponding with the White House in writing and often addressed those letters directly to Edith and waited for an answer from her. But the cracks began to show in December of 1919 when some of the people who were less invested in keeping the conspiracy tight started to ask questions, most notably Robert Lansing, who was the Secretary of State he was never a great fit for the Wilson administration. In fact, he had been threatening to quit for a while before the president got sick. And the silence from the White House drove him completely crazy. He felt like he couldn't do his job. He couldn't meet with the president. He couldn't not meet with the president. He just was completely hamstrung. And there was a situation in Mexico that is a little too tedious to go into. And Detail, but it was a situation that required a response from the Department of State. And Lansing fired off a response that he did not consult with the president about because no one was consulting with the president. So the Republicans, who had taken control of both houses of Congress in the 1918 midterms, used this as an excuse to bring Lansing in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, ask what he knew about the president's health. Lansing admitted that he hadn't met with the president. And the Republicans in the Senate said, all right, then we're all going to show up at the White House or a delegation of us is going to show up at the White House and see what is really going on there. And they pretended it was about this situation in Mexico, but it really was an excuse to kind of eyeball him and see how sick he was. So that was the stakes. This was really the first time that anyone in Washington was allowed into the White House. Edith knew that if she gave the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the usual stonewall that they would likely start impeachment hearings. So they had this kind of one moment to prove that the president was okay and actually doing the job himself to these members of the U.S. Senate.
0: So the 25th Amendment was quite a ways down the way.
1: So, yes, the 25th Amendment, which wasn't ratified until 1967, didn't exist. So the laws of what was supposed to happen if the president was incapacitated were murky. There's language in the Constitution that was vague. It didn't specify whether the vice president became president or acting president. And more to the point, it didn't specify who made that call. Who was it who stood up and said the president is incapable? And, you know, the likeliest candidates, his doctor, his chief of staff, his wife, were not going to do that. And neither was the vice president. He was a little bit of a clown. It was a guy named Thomas Marshall. And he wanted no part of the presidency. And he certainly wanted no part of being seen to usurp the presidency in any kind of illegitimate way. So there wasn't a lot of pressure internally to change the circumstance. The pressure had to come from the Republicans. And so that opening scene, which is a stage set, you know, they had to kind of prop President Wilson up in bed and cover his left side with a blanket because he was paralyzed on his left side. And they had to light the bed in shadow, but the seats in bright light so that the visitors couldn't really see what was going on. And it was all really, you know, set up to ideally pull off at least half an hour of decent stagecraft, so that um they would go away feeling like the President was in charge, even though he d- he did have to meet them in bed. he was still bedridden at that point, and amazingly, they pulled it off. It could have gone either way for sure, but not only was the President having a moment of clarity and and some wit, but everything had been prepped well enough so that he sort of thwarted whatever agenda the senators had of hoping to catch him out, either incompetent or drooling or not following the plot.
0: Seemed like it could have been in a Preston Sturgis movie fifteen, twenty years later.
1: It really could. Even at the time, everyone involved talked about it in theatrical terms. You know, they knew they were setting a stage. They knew they had a leading man. They knew they had costuming options. And actually, it ended in this very dramatic way where Carrie Grayson, the doctor who had been kind of hovering in the room to make sure everything was OK, got called away to the phone. And that phone call was saying that the situation in Mexico was resolved. So he was able to come back to the meeting room and say, it's all okay. You could all go now in this very, you know, dramatic moment of timing that even he hadn't planned out.
0: Now, here's the part in the movie and really your book where we go back to the beginning, at least of Edith Bowling's life. Her family was in a period of reduced circumstances right after the Civil War, weren't they?
1: They were. They had been planters in the James River Valley portion of Virginia. They had enslaved about 100 souls. And after the Civil War, when that was no longer a sustainable lifestyle, they came down in the world economically. They moved to Withville, Virginia, which is in the southwestern corner of the state, and were no longer planters. Mr. Bowling, Edith's father, was a judge and a man of some stature in Withville, but they lived in this funny little rabbit warren of rooms over storefronts on Main Street in Withville, And there were nine children. Edith was the sixth. Both parents, two grandmothers, an aunt, various cousins, assorted other guests and hangers-on. I mean, it was, it was crowded in that circumstance. And Edith was definitely brought up with those lost cause myths, being told that that was, you know, not the childhood she deserved, that there had been this gracious lifestyle before the Yankees took it all away.
0: She wasn't exactly appreciated by her aunt when she first arrived on the scene, was she?
1: (laughs) Um, Her, her aunt took one look at her and told Edith's mother, the aunt's sister, that's the ugliest baby you ever had, (laughs) which considering she had quite a few babies, there was, there was data to back that up, but she didn't stay ugly for a long. Edith, Edith was lovely. Um, And there's a picture of her at age 15 sitting on the back porch, of that home in Withville, sort of gazing out over the mountains, because Withville really is right in the foothills of Appalachia, and you can see in this teenager the beautiful woman she would become. So I don't think the ugly baby stage lasted very long.
0: She was born just less than a decade after the Civil War, and it seems so strange. The gap between the Civil War and World War One is around fifty years and that's about between our time and the end of the Vietnam War. It's just really hard to comprehend on how much the world had changed in those 50 years.
1: It's also, I think, a very little covered time period in history, especially if you learn American history through its wars, which I can make an argument is not a terrific way to learn how history (laughs) happens. But it does often seem that you know a kind of big survey of American history does Civil War touches on reconstruction, and then all of a sudden we're at, we're at World war one and you know maybe you touched into the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era a little bit but especially those first couple of decades of the 20th century were fascinating. I mean, America was changing so fast and growing so quickly and there were so many different social movements going on. Suffrage, as you mentioned, a lot of labor rights. There was, it was a huge time of immigration, prohibition, of course. So the amount of social upheaval in that time was vast. And if you only treat it as sort of an interregnum between one war and another, you're missing out on a huge amount of social change.
0: Woodrow Wilson, famously the president of Princeton before he became the president of the United States. What was Edith's education like?
1: So as I mentioned, sixth of nine children, she was largely educated at home. She had these two grandmothers. And, you know, I don't want to do a lot of psychoanalysis of someone 150 years after their birth, but I do think that the competing influence of those two grandmothers are really formative for Edith. She had her mother and her mother's mother really indoctrinating the daughters of the house in the Victorian ideal of true womanhood, you know, pious, submissive, domestic, pure. And both Mrs. Bowling and Mrs. Bowling's mother embodied those values to their core. Meanwhile, Grandmother Bowling, her father's mother, singled Edith out among all of those kids and really took hold of her education herself and taught her that she could trust her own opinions and that she was fierce and she was strong. And those completing lessons, you know, Edith by nature, I think really much more veered towards the strength and fierceness, but she spent a lot of time Cloaking her own opinions in these ideals that she thought she should be striving for. So while she was quite ambitious and confident, she spent a lot of time pretending she wasn't. She didn't have a ton of formal schooling. She went to one year of boarding school in Abingdon, Virginia, which she hated, came home tried another year of boarding school in richmond which she loved but that school closed because the headmaster had a terrible accident with the new streetcar system in richmond and by the time conversation started about what happens next year her three younger brothers were ready for school and they just didn't have enough money to educate girls anymore they needed to spend their budget on educating the boys and so at 18 she was really done with school she had learned a ton from her grandmother And she had had these two years of schooling. And, you know, sometimes her education is really dismissed in an effort to paint her as a country mouse. And I don't think that's fair. The lack of formal schooling was not particularly unusual for a girl of her time and place. And it doesn't mean she was ignorant. It does contrast rather sharply with Woodrow Wilson, who is still our only president with a PhD. You know, he had all kinds of formal schooling, but she was not a rube. And she very much wanted to get out of Withville. So at 18, with school over and not a lot left for her in her hometown, she came to Washington, D.C. She had an older sister who was married and living here and she came here in 1890 to sort of figure out what she could become.
0: Now, back to the concept of true womanhood. You, you call it the cult of true womanhood, and so much so that you capitalize true womanhood.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a thing. It's not me that capitalized it. It was, you know, put out as this ideal in every ladies' magazine and Godey's Ladies' Guide, you know, books that a certain segment of America look to as an ideal. And, you know, it's interesting, after I wrote the book, I was reading a biography of Carrie Nation, the prohibition activist, Mm -hmm. and they talked about the cult of true womanhood as very regional, because women on the frontier, and Nation was in Kentucky, didn't have the luxury of being pure and domestic, because they had to actually like build their own houses. And so the ideal womanhood on the western edge of the new nation was being useful. But in Virginia at that time, the ideal was being domestic and decorative.
0: Are you familiar with the the Trad Wife movement on the Internet nowadays?
1: I am. Yes.
0: It gave me kind of flashbacks to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there has been in every age an attempt to confine women to a certain role, and that role is defined in opposition to what men do, And women can either follow it or chafe against it, and it has existed in some form throughout human history.
0: Just this morning in the New York Times, I saw there was an article on the the Hijra movement in Indonesia, and it's a traditional Islam movement that goes back. You know, women aren't required to wear the hijab or niqab in Indonesia, but they're choosing to do so of their own accord.
1: Right. I mean, I think that, you know, you see echoes of all of that with this trad wife thing, too. Those ideally are women choosing that. And that's supposed to be what feminism is about, right? To let women choose their own path instead of have it be dictated by the men in their lives. And sometimes that can frustrate women who chose something else. But choice is choice.
0: And Edith was not particularly thrilled about the prospect of getting married and living this traditional upper middle class life at the time for a white woman.
1: She was not. And in fact, before she married, her first husband declared she would never marry, which was pretty radical for a girl of her time and place. I mean, that really was sort of what you aspired to at that time. And, you know, her family claimed descent from Pocahontas. In fact, she details all nine generations of descent from Pocahontas in her memoir. And that was considered a fairly big deal. It still is in some circles in Virginia considered a fairly big deal. Um, both because it shows how early your white colonial ancestors came to the colonies, but also the descent from royalty is pretty fancy. And the bowling sort of holding on to that descent was very much saying, you know, we, we might have lost our money, but we're still very rich in pedigree. And the whole point of caring about being rich in pedigree is to pass it on, right? And to marry someone else who's got that pedigree and kind of keep that blue blood going, And so Edith, by saying, I'm not interested in getting married to one of those boring boys and I'm not interested in carrying on this line, was pushing back against a fair number of generations of training.
0: How did they square the circle of this was the era of aiming toward purity amongst white people and eventually coming to the one drop rule of disqualifying you from being white with having this lineage from Pocahontas?
1: Oh, they had to tie themselves in knots to square that circle. I mean, even well into the 20th century, the anti-miscegenation laws in Virginia that forbade mixed marriages carved out a Pocahontas exception because being descended from a Native American means you are a little bit not white. And people wanted to retain their pride in that descent but not have it affect their pure whiteness. And so hypocrisy laid bare in a lot of those laws. They did have to tie themselves into some pretty serious knots to justify both of those things being true at once.
0: Now, you write in the book, Washington, D.C. at the time, was viewed as somewhat of a backwater compared to the the larger, more glamorous cities of the Northeast.
1: Well, backwater, yes, but growing fast. So, you know, Washington only became a city you know, 1799, 1800. And so in the 1890s, when Edith moved here, it was really still inventing itself in a lot of ways, but it was also growing so fast. Um, You know, people moved to capitals during wars. The Civil War had led to a giant population boom here. And the city was finding it hard to keep up. The infrastructure was really not ready for that level of population. And there was real talk about moving the capital West, maybe to someplace like St. Louis, where that was more central in the bigger country. And in order to thwart that talk, the local city fathers here embarked on a huge public works project project and paved all the streets and added lighting and streetcars and sewers and just made it a much more livable city. And there was so much money pouring in here and so much money to be made as the city grew and developed that Gilded Age Washington was quite fashionable and quite popular. There was a, a gossip column that said it was as fashionable to have a winter home in Washington as it was to have a summer home in Newport. And and some of that is that you could reinvent yourself here, that the hidebound social strictures of Boston and New York and, you know, Mrs. Astor's 400 that you read about in Edith Wharton novels really gatekept who got to be part of society. But in Washington, everything was moving too fast. And even the deepest roots were pretty shallow because it hadn't been a city for very long. And it's so transient. This is still true of Washington. You know, people come and go with administrations. And so if you want to find a place to exercise your shiny new Gilded Age fortune that might have been acquired through less than reputable means and no one knows who your grandfather is, you know, Washington was a pretty great place to do it. And you can still see those Gilded Age mansions in town here. You know, most of them have become private clubs or embassies or something else, but they exist and they were all built around that same time around the turn of the century.
0: So in modern day D.C., where is the uh, trendy place to summer?
1: (laughs) Well, let's put it this way. Um, And I'm a local, right? So uh, my family has always spent our summers in Pawleys Island, South Carolina. And the reason we chose that is because if you went to Nantucket, you just see all the same people that you saw in Washington.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how did Norman Galt become enamored with Edith?
1: When Edith moved here, she moved in with her sister, Gertrude, and her sister's husband, Alexander Galt, and Alexander's cousin, Norman, came over for dinner. You know, you have family to dinner, and Edith was 18, Norman was older, and he seems to have been smitten from the beginning. He, by all accounts, was a perfectly nice guy, maybe a little boring, maybe a little stuffy, certainly not, you know, cast as a romantic hero here, but A total upstanding citizen. You know, he was a member of the vestry of his church and he was on all the right boards and he ran this business, Galt's Jewelers, which had been in business since before DC was really a city. And it was sort of the Tiffany's of Washington. It was the high end jewelry and silver store here in town and it existed until well into the 21st century. And so he was this man of some stature. He ran a high-end business. He was respected by his peers. And if he was a little bit uptight, you know, that didn't take away from the respect that he was due. And he courted Edith Pretty assiduously. And she chose him for reasons of security. I mean, her own memoir, she dismisses him quite coldly, actually. She claims she never felt strongly about him, that he was perfectly nice and he was very, very kind to her family. But in no terms does she describe love or passion or any of the language she uses for Woodrow Wilson. But it seems like they were content and he hired all three of her younger brothers and, you know, they became, especially after Edith's father died, they became kind of the bedrock of the family. They welcomed everybody to Washington and made sure that everyone was financially secure. They had one baby who only lived for a couple of days and then had no more children You know, they lived in this stylish townhouse in DuPont Circle and um, enjoyed having some stature and some wealth. And they seemed to do just fine with each other. They uh, they were married for 12 years, longer than she was married to Wilson. But he gets about, you know, a page and a half in her memoir. And he died in 1908, somewhat unexpectedly, and left her the business. She became the owner of Galt's.
0: Now, early on when she declared that she never wanted to get married, how did she envision supporting herself?
1: I mean, that's not really clear. I think, uh, you know, she also decided she didn't want to go to college. So a lot of the, you know, wage earning methods open to girls of that class being a teacher or governess of some kind were, were not particularly open to her. She didn't really have a you know special skill. She played the piano, but not in any way well enough to make a living from it. So I'm not quite sure what she would have done. I think that's actually one of the reasons she did end up marrying Norman Galt is because her options were pretty limited. And you know, after some time in Washington and living with her sister and going to the theater all the time and being able to be sort of stylish and urban in a way that She couldn't back home. She actually did go back to Withville briefly. That was when she decided to marry Norman. I think she looked around and said, wow, I can't stay here and my options are pretty limited. And this secure, perfectly nice guy seems to want to marry me. That's my ticket out.
0: And her father's death left their family in straits as well.
1: Both financial straits and kind of organizational straits. I mean, I think that William Bowling was the load bearing wall of that family in a lot of ways, in part because Mrs. Bowling embodied those traits of true womanhood. She was never encouraged to make decisions on her own. She, you know, was never adept with money. She didn't know how to sell the house. She didn't know how to go on, really. She had never been in that position. And Edith says in her memoir, you know, Norman and I decided to step in and make decisions for my mother because it made her so unhappy to be faced with anything important.
0: Now, in Norman's pursuit of Edith, and then especially of Dr. Carrie Grayson's pursuit of his wife, it struck me just how men were committed to going years and years trying to to win the woman of their eye.
1: In many ways, it's quite romantic. Who knows what Norman's courting method was? Because, you know, mainly what we know about him, we know from Edith, and she was interested in downplaying their marriage. But you're right. Carrie Grayson is another one. Uh, He was a good friend of Edith's, and he was courting this woman, Alice Gertrude Gordon, known as Altrude. She wasn't really Edith's ward, but she was much younger than edith and and when her father died, he asked Edith to kind of keep an eye on her and so Edith and Altrude took a lot of trips together and spent a lot of time together and So when Carrie Grayson was trying to get altrud's attention, he went through Edith a lot and asked her advice and you know fretted over the ups and downs of their relationship, and meanwhile, Altrud was doing the same thing, and does he really like me, and should I be going to this place? And you know so she was very much the intermediary in their roller coaster relationship. and it was ultimately Carrie Grayson who introduced Edith to Woodger Wilson because he was Wilson's doctor.
0: Women at the time were so legally dependent on their husbands for providing their access into the commercial world and owning property and such. How did she escape being financially ruined by his passing?
1: Amazingly, he left the business to her. And married women property acts had passed in all 50 states by 1908, just barely. They hadn't been on the law books very long in a lot of places, but the reform had happened where married women could keep their own property. But those laws were new enough that they definitely could be challenged. And had they had children, especially boy children, had Norman's father been alive or his brother not been an invalid, in other words, had a had a man been able to step forward and challenge Edith's right to inherit the store and be the executor of his estate, she could have had a much harder time of it. But as it happened, there really wasn't anyone in her way. So she became, I mean, think about it, 1908, a woman of unusual independence, right? She didn't need a chaperone because she was a widow. She had her own money. She had her own say over her own money. She had no children. And so she was an independent woman of means in a way that was just not a status a lot of women were able to achieve. And she was really good at it. I mean, she not only kept Galt's solvent, but she really enjoyed that role. She traveled to Europe all the time. She became extremely fashionable, beautiful clothes and hats. And as you might imagine, for somebody who owned a jewelry store, good jewelry. She became the first woman in Washington to get a driver's license. She drove around town in this funny little electric car, top speed, 13 miles an hour. And she became someone sort of known about Tad. Other memoirs of the period, especially written by society hostesses, mention Mrs. Galt and her little electric car. And so there she was, this lovely, beautifully dressed, stylish, wealthy, independent, globe-trotting, car-driving, business-owning widow.
0: Did she attract a lot of interest from other bachelors in the area before Wilson came along?
1: Sure. She seems to have held them all pretty much at arm's length. And again, not a lot of people were paying attention to Edith Bolling-Galt before she met the president. And so our only source for a lot of these years is her. And her memoir... I mean, it's delightful, it's funny, and it's frank, and it's a delight to read, but it is also at points demonstrably untrue. And so you have to take it with at least one grain of salt. If you read her letters, she does seem to have corresponded with a few men. And on at least one of those European trips with her sister, Bertha, two men accompanied them. And There is another doctor, actually, who continues to be a friend throughout her life, who was clearly a suitor at that time. But she dismissed them all. And I don't know how many of them actually came to the point of proposing, but she was not interested in giving up the life she had earned.
0: Well, Rebecca, we haven't even gotten to her meeting the president yet, but we're at the end of our time for this episode. Would you mind coming back for the next time to talk about her life with Woodrow Wilson?
1: Oh, I can't wait. There's so much more to tell.
0: All right. Until next time. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts is the author of Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson, which is published by Viking. Please come back next time as we continue our conversation as the then Edith Bowling Galt meets Woodrow Wilson and serves as First Lady and a bit more. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.